on the Empire Podcast this week. Bum, 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 bum. Danny Elfman's just popped in there, which means only one thing. Tim Burton's on the show. Yes, the legendary director drops by to talk about his new movie, Big Eyes. While the Dumb and Dumberers behind Dumb and Dumber 2, Jim Carrey, Jeff Daniels and Peter Farrelly also pop in. All that and the usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is an exceptional thief, Mrs. McLean. And since we're moving up to kidnapping, you should be more polite. Hello, Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the last Empire podcast of 2014. Oh, yay. Boom, 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 boom. But we'll be back on January 9th. Hooray! Meantime, we're going to come down your chimney and stuff you full of Christmas cheer, enough to keep you going over the next couple of weeks. Joining me today on my very own podcast, Elves, three colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up, it's our art house guru, a man for whom no Christmas is complete without a glass of mulled wine, a roaring fire, and the soothing sounds of a fairy Werner Herzog Christmas on the old stereo. My particular favourites from that album include Christmas is just a capitalist construct and Santa Claus is dead. I have seen his corpse and I have danced on his grave. It's Phil Dissemlian. How are you? Hey. <laughs> How's it it's going? It's just a cigarette paper between that and your Werner Herzog and your Peter Lorre. No, no, there's a very distinct I difference. I think there's enough to, a make, very distinct to make Helen come out in hives, but she no, couldn't be with us today for that Werner reason. Werner Herzog is gravelier and more grave. Peter Lorre talks like that. He's much lower, and okay. you see, there's a big difference, Phil. I think Werner is quite close to Arnie. What do you think? No, Arnie's like that, and you talk like that, and I will go. That's not a. Word. That's a hat trick. <laughs> hat trick of terrible impressions right off the bat. Up next is our film fact fiend, a man for whom no Christmas is complete without a glass of fizzy pop, a Terry's chocolate orange original. The big ones, not the little mini ones. He doesn't like those. All the fizzy. I don't like the, the expo- fizzy. What's the exploding candy about? <sighs> and a game of Trivia Pursuit where he refuses to answer anything but the pink questions. It's Ali Plum. How are you? I'm good, thanks. You know there's a Radio Times Trivia Pursuit edition coming out. It's, uh, it's out now. It's out right now. Shut your mouth. Nothing but TV questions. Whoa. And film. TV and film questions. So finally, my love of some mothers do have them will be on display yeah. in a family arena. Ooh, Betsy. I deliberately got that wrong. Just in case you, <laughs> you were wondering. Uh, last but not least, it's our resident apes loving banana holder wielding cool dude, a man for whom no Christmas is complete without a warm glass of banana wine, bananas roasting on an open fire, and Andy Circus playing all the presents under his tree. It's Dan Jolin. How are you? Banana. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for that cold. Because <laughs> a maniacal cold laugh. Uh, are you good? Are you banana, good? Banana, 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 banana. banana. Excellent. Uh, here are some questions that you guys have sent into us via Twitter. Uh, Dexter Green says, "Question for you: With Hugh Jackman in X Men Apocalypse, because he is in talks to play Wolverine in X Men Apocalypse." W- Wolverine. Uh, I know. I know. They want to go in a new direction with that character. Uh, with Hugh Jackman in X Men Apocalypse, because he is in talks, nobody saw that coming. Has anyone appeared in more than eight movies as the same? character. Dan is nodding. Yeah. Basil Hugh, Rathbone. Hugh Grant. Oh, burn. Sick burn. Bro. Ouch. Hugh, take it. Ouch. Oh, my word. So you just, you wade straight in with the comedy answer and you trampled all over Dan's You did my answer. serious answer. <laughs> yeah. So Dan... Should we start again? No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's good. Basil Rathbone. Basil Rathbone. Yes. Played Sherlock Holmes 14 times in films. He played it more times than that. I think it's 14. 14 or 15. I've, mm. I've, 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 I counted twice and got to two different answers. So <laughs> let's just say 14 or 15. Yes. 
Amazing. Which which so outhues Hugh that he's kind of you know the Uber Hugh, <laughs> the Uber Hugh. Yeah, the Uber Hugh. Yeah, Uber Hugh. But I want to hear more of Phil's joke. Yes. All right then. No, I've got a serious. Too late now. It's done. Werner Werner Olin. Warner Warner Olin. Sorry, start that again. Warner Olin played Charlie Chan sixteen times in movies. <gasps> yeah. Wow. So that out Hughes and Basil's. Yeah. So he's like the Uber Basil. He's the Uber Uber Basil. Because I, I tried counting how many times Sid James has played a character called Sid. Mm-hmm. But he's got the, he has different surnames. Sorry, yep. carry on, Sid James, for carry all on, of you yeah. children out there. Yeah, he's uh, yeah he he kind of doesn't really count. Doesn't really count. He doesn't really count. How about some close but no cigar mentions for Roger Moore? He Roger Moore. For a decent number of times. He played Bane. <laughs> he played Bane. <laughs> he played Bane. <laughs> I'm going to get you Batman. Now is not the time for fear. That comes later. Urbain. Um, he played Bond seven times. This impression will be very painful. Hmm. He sort of played oh, Bond yeah. in the Cannonball Run. That's sort of. Sort of. Can we say seven and a half? Let's say seven and a half. Can you imagine Stan Lee? <laughs> Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? So, the Stan wow. Lee cinematic universe. Yeah. He is the fourth most successful by box office actor in the world. What That's, is Nick Fury up to? What is Nick Fury now? up to? What is he up to number-wise rather than actually what's he doing? Six. Six. Seven will be Ultron. Right. Okay. Are we counting episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in that? Mm, No, No. because the the question was about movies. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is a TV show. Well, uh, Jacko, as he likes me to call him, uh, has signed a nine-picture deal on Marvel. And he's very close to completing that as well. By the time Avengers Infinity War Part 1, sorry, Part 2, finishes, Robert Downey will have played... Robert Downey Jr., sorry. Will have played Tony Stark. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Nine. Am I right? Is that nine? That's nine. I lost count. So Hugh Jackman will have to appear in another movie to to rival that. There is, of course, Robert England, who uh, played Freddy Krueger in eight movies, seven Nightmare on Elm Street movies, and Freddy vs. Jason. Weirdly enough, no, no actor has played Jason Voorhees, even though there have been eleven Jason Voorhees movies, uh, twelve if you count the terrible remake. No actor has played him that many times Kane mm. Hodder is probably the actor who's more closely associated with the character but he's only played him a handful of times mm. over the, uh, the course of the movies and of course we know that Jason isn't the killer in the first Friday the 13th that's Betsy Palmer so there you go let's not forget <coughs> Johnny Weissmuller that's n- never Johnny forget. Weissmuller played Tarzan 12 times I believe Johnny Weissmuller mm. no but there's, a, there's one coming next year oh yeah Alexander Skarsgård's six-pack playing Tarzan. That's right. Which is, which is going to be very interesting. Margot Ma- Robbie playing Jane. And my good friend Jacko, he's in the cast as well. Not Carl Harmon from Brushstrokes, but Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, brilliant. I, I look forward to Vin Diesel's 13th appearance as Dominic Toretto. <laughs> <laughs> when that will be, That's who can say? But it will happen. It's true, isn't it? Let, but, let it be said, it will happen. By the time there are... They're saying there'll be ten Fast and Furious movies. Well, he'll have been in nine of them. So there you go. That's more than Hugh Jackman. Mm. Interesting. If we're looking at Bond, Judy Dench played M seven times, three Daniel Craig movies and four Pierce Brosnan films. Uh, Bernard Lee played uh, M a number of times. Uh, sort of Robert Brown. Uh, but really, I think from that franchise, you're looking at Lois Maxwell as Moneypenny and uh, Desmond Llewellyn yeah. as Q, who must have been racking up the, 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 in the teens, certainly in yeah. the teens. Good shout. Good shout, indeed. Good shout, Chris but Hewitt. In terms of like a, a being a major star, anchoring a film, I said anchoring, apart from your, your, your Mr. Rathbone, in the modern-day era, yeah, it's got to be 
the likes of Downey and, and Jackman. Mm. And it's, it's becoming something that's more prevalent, isn't it? As more and more actors sign on to multiple films. Yeah. Something like te- films are becoming TV episodes. Really expensive, really long TV episodes. Yeah. You can't, you have like, to wait three years what's, in between. What's, what's, yeah, what's in the next episode? Tune in in three years to find out. Absolutely. All right, so that's that question answered to our satisfaction, Dexter. Um, here's a question, and I don't know who sent this in. I'm so sorry. Uh, we asked here, Steve, for a bunch of Christmas movie-related questions because the last podcast for Christmas, we're sitting here we're in, a, in our little recording booth, our new souped-up super recording booth. There's a bit of tinsel around the microphone. It feels very Christmassy right now. Uh, Dan's wearing a Santa Claus hat. Phil is wearing a Santa Claus top and is otherwise naked from the waist down. But uh, otherwise, it's all good. Um, so let's get a Christmassy question. They were all kind of things we've tackled in the past, apart from this one, which I, I quite like. If you were Hans Gruber, taking over the Nakatomi Plaza on Christmas Eve, what would you do differently? Oh, oh, can I answer this? You can answer that. Yes. I'd wear a parachute. <laughs> At all times? Yeah. <laughs> just have a secret one under my jacket. Yeah? Yeah. And then just... Yeah. Exactly. As he drops down the German you flag. You that shot. That shot, how he would play differently if he had a parachute. He'd be like... Ooh, and then he'd go... Like, <laughs> and, I, and I'm doing the two-finger salute here, guys. Like that. And then, and then a parachute would open up. And John McClane would be... Ah, poo... Hmm, the entire building is surrounded by police, remember? Yeah, I know, but then he'd have like little jets in his boots <coughs> that would go shh, and he'd sort of go off into the horizon, and he'd come back for Die Hard 2, The Revenge of Hans Gruber. Mm. That's, a, that's a much better film. That's a much better ending. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Die, Hard's one, Die Hard's one of those movies, and yes, God, we're going to be the cliche you know, people who are talking about Die Hard as a Christmas movie, and we love it, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But Die Hard's one of those movies where you kind of actually almost wish the bad guy would survive, because Hans is so fantastically charismatic. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was talking about it just with, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a massive Die Hard fan. Uh, James Dyer in The Office is an even bigger Die Hard fan than I am. And we were talking about this, and really, Hans doesn't do an awful lot wrong. Even when he's improvising under pressure, he still, you know, he plays all the right notes. Uh, you know, whenever he's, uh, whenever he's, he's uh, discovered by McLean. He does that wonderful improvisation act. Oh God, no! Don't kill me! I'm Bill Clay, you know that kind of thing. And that's really, really interesting, you know. And you know, he's uh, he's a man who thinks fast on his feet. And he, otherwise, the plan is meticulous. He just didn't legislate as you wouldn't mm. for the poison pill running around upstairs. But, hey. mm. I would have got my brother in probably. Really? Yeah. What, what not Nick? Simon. Not Simon Gruber. Of Die Hard with Avengers, my actual brother. <laughs> You're Nick. Yeah, no one, no one <laughs> because, can outthink Nick because he doesn't know what he's doing from one minute to the next. So it's he, like, <laughs> he, how can you he, second guess him? He can out improvise anybody. <laughs> um, even he doesn't know what he's about to do. And I also probably have shot Harry Ellis sooner. You think? Yeah, straight away. Straight away. Yeah. He's got that look about him. He's going to be annoying. With the benefit of hindsight, you would ask the guy who is checking the rooms. He's clearing out the rooms, and McLean's in the room, and the guy, one of the terrorists, gets distracted by the, the people having sex in one of the rooms. And he looks around, and it, it delays it for a split second, giving McLean the chance to run into the stairwell. Mm. With the benefit of hindsight, you would brief your people: do not be distracted by boobs. Don't, don't. I want a complete and utter focus here, because if he doesn't get distracted, he sees McLean. McLean gets shepherded into the room with everyone else, and then they all end up dying on the roof. Hans and this guy go to a beach and earn twenty percent. I, I like the uh, hashtag that was going around Twitter yesterday, which was, was it misquoting Die Hard or Die Hard misquotes? Yes. But the best one was, now I have a machine hoe, gun, gun, gun. 
<laughs> I like uh, I like the one who said we were terriers. <laughs> I read about it in Empire magazine. That's your questions done. If you want to have a question read out on the Empire podcast in 2015, then do send in your questions. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. We are on email, podcast at empireonline.com. And you can even Facebook us as well. We're on there as Empire Magazine, funnily enough. Okay, time now for our first interview. It's been 20 years, 20 years since Dumb and Dumber introduced Harry Dunn and Lloyd Christmas to the world, compounded Jim Carrey's burgeoning megastardom and launched the Farley Brothers' career. Oh, and also made us realise that Jeff Daniels could be funny. Now they're all back, back, back in the sequel, Dumb and Dumber 2. And so I crammed myself into a London hotel room recently with Messrs. Carrie, Daniels, and one half of the Farrelly's, Mr. Peter, to take a trip down memory lane. Quick word of the wise, the sound levels in this, because Jim Carrey is Jim Carrey, might be a little bit, a little bit all over the shop. But uh, otherwise, enjoy. Uh, this is. I'll, I'll do a quick introduction and then we off we go. Oh uh, sure. Del- I guess they have to know who they're listening to. They don't have to they? know who they're listening to. That's the mm-hmm. thing. You know. Otherwise, you know. Uh, delighted to be joined. Can you tell who I am? <laughs> I like a lot. I like a lot. That's Jim Carrey. Yeah. And this is Peter Farley. Hello. Sir. Hello. How are you? I'm yes. good. And Jeff Daniels is late. Jeff Daniels is joining us shortly. Is Jeff Daniels always late? Is he's something- in the. He's in the can. I think. Yeah. Oh, he's in the boy. loo. Okay, here he yeah, is. Yeah, man. Here he is. No, we just started without you. <laughs> I was urinating. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I was going to say, are you... urine is mine. <laughs> uh, hello. Are you, are you normally late, Jeff, on set? Are you, uh, That's Chris. I'm usually, you, Chris, how are you? Good to see you. I did not wash my hands. And, and Chris, uh, it says we have to take it right up here with the mic. You have to stick it right, right into your mouth. I'm sorry. Okay. okay. Actually, no, you guys are doing okay. You're doing okay. You're fine. Okay. Keep, keep it down here. This is good. Okay. This is good. Oh, okay. This is good. Right. We figured it out. A lot of people don't uh, know this, but my voice is very creamy at times. <laughs> uh, it's as if uh, someone's been given a, a bowl of stew and all the chunks have been removed. Stew? Wait stew? Second, I lost my voice there. Stew? <laughs> stew. <laughs> Jeff, how would you describe your voice? Uh, non stew like. Nails on a black Non stew like. Yeah, more like of a, you know, like a, a light broth, maybe. <laughs> Uh, Peter, you, you're, you're a director, so you've got More a, of a commanding voice, right? Um, I, I, I think it's probably a little nasally, I've been yeah. told. Yeah, you no? got quite no. a schnoz there. You know, I had a, um, I had a, uh, a girl once. If you was... told the future, your name would be Schnozdradamus. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I had a girl, I was on a date years ago, and as a Swedish girl, and I remember oh, she looked great across story. at me, and she's, <laughs> she looked really close. She goes, your, your eyes. I said, yeah. She goes, your eyes. They're... <laughs> Dead. I was like, "What?" She goes, "You have dead eyes." I was like, "Really? Yeah, you have like dead eyes. There's no life in your eyes. It's dead." I was like, oh, "That's nice. Yeah. That's that didn't go anywhere." So, where, wow. yeah, where do you go from that? No, he married her. Just... <laughs> he married her. Yeah. Fourteen she children later, called them out. <laughs> so, guys, congratulations on the film. Number one U.S. box office. Does yeah, this mean it is sweet? Expect? It's fantastic. And all those people who said I couldn't do it, screw you. <laughs> Who was saying that? Uh, there were a couple. No one really Jeff Daniels. I, I was yeah. one. I said, you can't drag me onto this movie. Not and next thing I know, I was there and we were shot. Now we're number one. What do I know? Yeah. Now we got to live with this. So you were actively lobbying against this film, no, Jeff? Was not that? At all. I couldn't wait. Pete called me, God, a couple, two, three years before we actually shot it. Look, Jim's in. We're in. We're writing. Are you in? Absolutely. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, what about you? Were you, were me? You, were you the holdout or... 
Uh, yeah, for quite a while, I, I didn't want to do sequels. Uh, so, you know, because I wanted to, you know, if I had done the sequels to the first few movies that I did, I wouldn't have been able to do Eternal Sunshine or Truman Show or yeah. any Grinch, of that stuff. You know, he Grinch. did some great stuff because yeah. he didn't do sequels. Yeah, it so was... that was my plan at the beginning is to kind of like, you know, but now I'm desperate and I'll do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so no, what's next? It honestly was just like, it was honestly just kind of like at a certain point watching it and going like, you know what? I love these guys. Yeah. Yeah. And these guys need to live in the world. And then there were the world leaders who were constantly badgering us and saying, there's unrest. I, I must say, it is fun watching them slip into character because they're, they are not themselves at that point. They really do become Harry and Lloyd. And it's bizarre how in it they are and, and, and quickly out of it. And become, it was on that first morning, too, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. We hadn't read it. We no. hadn't done anything except rolling. And there they were. Yeah. It was I easy. remember you gave a little head shake. Yeah, I yeah. do my head shake yeah. to get me to my, you know, my yeah. lack of method acting yeah. preparation. Yeah, is, is gives himself a concussion basically. I do. Yeah, is, is the head shake what to get the eyes concussion. working in the right direction, or just to clear the head of all thoughts? First of all, actors are stupid. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. <laughs> and they have all this preparation, and all that. I would literally just try the image of sloshing my brain around inside my skull. I felt that would release any intelligence I had, whatever it was, Mm -hmm. to get to that level of dumbness. Yeah. And it worked. And man, you especially during the you grab onto whatever works, and then they say rolling, and you. Thankfully, it worked. It was difficult for me. Yeah, so difficult for me to 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 get rid and kind of transcend this cursed intelligence. Yeah, some actors are too smart. Took took about ten seconds. Um, (laughs) um, The you had that look, by the way, in uh, Jeff when you in your was it seventh or eighth grade uh, photo that was in the house. It was it was if you shook your head before that picture was taken. That picture was frightening. People like, think when did that you we, have your eyes fixed? I know it. I, I, <laughs> I, they were crossed in the picture. They're like, oh. and, you know, and those those junior high or high school pictures are the ones where you get one shot, click, oh, yeah. and you're moving on. Yeah, there was. Like, and I there think was a, the eyes were at half mast. It was as if a fly had landed on your nose. It's just yeah. god awful. And then they're, you know, and then on movies they'll go, "Hey, do you have any family photos? We're going to put them on the dresser of Harry's room yeah, and all yeah. that." And there Fantastic. it was. There it was. It's yeah, a classic people, shot. People don't believe. It. They think that we messed with that thing that that's not really you they said yeah. where'd you how'd you do that that's, that's, that's real years I, of that was a ninth grade picture years i handed that out to friends <laughs> well, <laughs> you signed that. i handed that picture out to friends <laughs> would you like me to sign it yeah <laughs> that should be on a t-shirt that picture what school was that at, by the way? Was that Chelsea or on a milk carton? High school. Milk carton. <laughs> was that high school or, or junior i want to say it was freshman high school wow. yes Awkward phase. Yeah. Awkward phase. Was it really a bad photograph, or were you just in character as Harry even back then? Was no, it, it was. Well, there was not a lot of intelligence, but there, there was. Uh, it was no. That was the actual photo. You didn't get take two. But at the in time, did you photos. think? Did you think it was a bad photo at the time? Did you think eh, that's pretty good? It looked pretty good. <laughs> this is going to get me to second base. <laughs> so the the, uh, the first day, Peter, I talked to you about a month ago about this movie, and uh, you said the first day back on set was the scene where Harry and Lloyd get on the bike and cycle over from, from the, your flat, your, par- your apartment, yes. to Harry's parents' house. There's a lot of bumping and grinding, Jim. Yeah, that's right. Rifling right. off. Now, not I in like, the script, I, like I might not, add. Yeah. Not in the script. I spray a lot. <laughs> and I, I just basically, you know, put my essence everywhere. 
<laughs> is that Mark in your territory? That's or what, right. You know? Yeah, that's right. Jeff is Mark. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm the Jeff Mark. Mark. <laughs> yeah. It's just one of those things that Lloyd feels is uh, hilarious. Well, if you look at the wipe his both butt on movies, someone. there is a lot of homoeroticism in there. <laughs> Between these two guys, they're in hot tubs. They're in, you know, you guys are <laughs> with no, no <laughs> even yeah. idea There's that a lot it might of be hugging, and that just happened naturally. <laughs> yeah, crying, breaking up, <laughs> totally organic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The love scenes that we had to cut. Oh yeah, yeah. R-rated, X-rated, yeah. NC-17. Well, I think the yeah. first movie is the reason gays can get married now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, it didn't hurt it. Mm-hmm. You make it a powerful a statement at the end of the first movie when they turned down all those ladies. Yeah. Exactly. So that's what you, you and Bobby you were go. clearly going for that. Go right off on their own. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but is, you know, now, now the movie's doing, doing really well at the U.S. box office. Are you getting the, in, the inevitable, oh, this is one of them, Dumb and Dumber 3 questions? Are you getting those already? Or you're not going to do Dumb and Dumber 3. We're going we're gonna to skip right to 4 because these guys can't <laughs> count. They can't count. F-O-R. Yeah. F-O-R. Yeah. Uh, any plans? You know, or you just, is it all very, very much... Not really, not, not any plans. But it's all up it, to the maestro yeah. here. Yeah. No, I mean, it would be something, I, pro, I would not be surprised if it happened down the road, but I wouldn't say it would be the next thing we did. Okay, okay. Uh, in, in terms of the, uh, the back catalog, Peter, the last time we spoke, you were talking about you'd maybe like to do a Kingpin too, maybe like to follow up or something like that. Nah, you know what? Not, you know? not really. I mean, that, yeah. if ever I was going to do another sequel, it would be that, but that's not going to happen. I, I would only do, I think. Woody doesn't remember the first movie. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. You'd have to be slowly reintroduced to it. Just, I, <laughs> I, I might have said that was the only one that had, like, you know, at the end of uh, something about Mary, people said, let's do a sequel. And that made zero sense. At least mm. Kingpin, you could have a rematch. You know, so you had that, but I, I don't. I would never make that. Only Dumb and Dumber because there's no character arc; they don't mm. grow. Those guys are exactly the same, so you could always pick up with a new adventure, and they have. You a can change. count on stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just can't count with stupid. You go from no. one, two, straight to four. In terms of your back catalogs, guys, is there any character from your you know, your past that you'd like to revisit? And uh, maybe to put a twist on it, Jeff, I'll get you to pick one from Jim's past. And Jim, if you can pick one from Jeff's past, you'd like to see each other play again. Oh, my gosh. Squid and the Whale Part 2? <laughs> Terms of endearment. Yes. Terms Blows of, his brains out yeah. on page 30. <laughs> yeah. Terms of endearment, it would be sort of a... Uh, In the museum, it'd be, it'd be he blows like his brains out. It'd be like rabbit redux, you know? <laughs> yes, it would. It would. That's right. Uh... I'd like to see him do something straight. He did it with Eternal Sunshine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, okay, so Eternal again. or But just something <laughs> more dramatic. dramatic. Yeah, because, you know, he can do it. He really can do it. And he's done it. I'd like him to see that do that again, seriously. Absolutely. So definitely not, not something wild? Don't fancy that? No. Love that no. movie. Yeah. No. Love, love, love that movie. Something Wild is one of my top it's fantastic. ten, maybe Incredible five movie. favorite movies of all time. I've seen it more than any other movie except The Wizard of Oz. That's really truth. yes. It, wow! I love Jonathan everything about Demi. it. I, I love the, the look. I love the music. I love the story. You know, I everything's like, great about that phenomenal. movie. And Jeff's incredible. Mm. In that yeah, film. and that was Ray Liotta's yeah, first Ray Liotta movie, wasn't it? Was Ray's so first movie. Super frightening. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys get into it? I had. I cut my the underside of my chin. Really? Right here during the fight, he threw me down on the. And I dove onto the floor, and the, the Virginia for Lovers decal stuck on the linoleum, and I just, boom, put the chin right into the floor and 11 stitches. Um, and then you got up and took his head off. <laughs> and then 
Yeah, and then really? 11, 11 stitches, stitches, and then we broke for you, and you know, and then I came back after lunch, and we kept shooting. We had to. He's like, "Hey, sorry about that, Jeff." Tick tock, <laughs> tick tock. You couldn't, you couldn't see it because it was under the chin, so they just put yeah. the camera up a little. But we shot the whole rest of the fight scene over five days with eleven oh stitches. Yeah, amazing. It was, it wasn't Ray. It was me. I'm you know what I dove. loved about that movie is that it looked like a real place everywhere you went. Mm. They didn't try to make it look, you know, they like people. Except it was up. flat. <laughs> True. No, it was. It just looked real. the The whole story and every even little things like, "Hey, Charlie, attempt to be cool." You know, like yeah. in the gas station thing. Just every little thing was awesome. Yeah. In the in the interest of a clumsy segue, there are, are two more things about Dumb Dumber Two I really want to talk about. I'm uh, crap compared to that movie. You're not. You're not. <laughs> no, I'm crap. You're not. Truman no. Show. Hello. No, no, no. I'm sorry. No. No. Something wrong. Oh, come on. Pull out of it. Pull out of it. Pull out of it. <laughs> it's, fine. it's fine. You'll get through. It'll be okay. Um, it's oh. not complimenting him. Him. It's taking from me. That's yes. What you're doing. Yes. <laughs> Typical Hollywood. Amazing. Amazing guys. I gotta let you go. Pete. Jim. Jeff. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Okay. So time now for movie news. I wonder. I wonder. <laughs> What the big news is to talk about. It's, it's a bit of a news explosion. It is, isn't it? Isn't it? A movie news explosion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is the news that uh, Sony have finally, in the States anyway, we don't know what they're doing in the UK yet, mm. have pulled the release of Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg's The Interview from cinemas. It was due to open on Christmas Day over there in the States. This is as a result of the, well, hack attack Mm. Sony Pictures Entertainment, someone, a group calling themselves the Guardians of Peace, who may or may not be aligned with North Korea, have um, uh, obviously attacked the Sony Pictures Entertainment, released a lot of sensitive documents into the wild. We talked about that in last week's podcast, and how Empire was not going to cover any news that came from the hacks themselves. But this, mm. this itself, is too big to ignore. Mm. A movie has been pulled from release because of a so-called terrorist threat. So the group calling themselves the Guardians of Peace not only were behind the hack attack, but they basically released a statement saying that they were prepared to uh, attack theatres. Yeah, it was very oblique. They oblique, just said, yeah. oh, remember 9-11? Well, mm. And we will visit great... F- mm. you know, you know, um, yeah. Uh, and they, yeah, obliquely threatened anyone yeah. going to see the interview in the, uh, in the States. Mm. A number of cinema chains in the States, or theatre chains, as they're called over there, uh, then decided to not show the interview. And this reached such a uh, crescendo, reached such a snowball, uh, that Sony, eventually last night, decided to pull the movie from theatres, which has, let's be honest here, uh, attracted a lot of criticism. The the, the, the decision to pull it. The decision to pull it, yeah. Yeah. Well, how could they not if there were no cinemas to show it? Precisely. It's one of those things where if in all but name it's been cancelled pra- by just sheer practicality, there is oh, there are three cinemas in this <laughs> state that happen to be showing it out of patriotic pride or for whatever reason. You know, is that worth doing? I mean, no. it's a tough one. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a debate to be had here, but I, I, there's no solution. This is a real scary thing. Yeah, they're over a barrel. I mean, you know, this decision's not come from them primarily. It's come from the likes of Cinemark and Carmike and Cineplex. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, I mean, you know, Cineplex just, just said it's an, un- an unprecedented and complex situation, although they're not against, you know, freedom of expression. Mm. You kind of understand 
their worry. But um, I, I think this is a this is a fascinating story. I mean, terrifying and fascinating. But if you, if you go back and look at it, the initial attacks on on Sony, no one was talking about the interview. No, no, they, they was it, the first sort of you know email they got from this group. Who, by the way, at that point, were not saying they were the so guardians of peace. They were God's mm-hmm. apostles. Um, they mentioned the interview, and it wasn't until the media started making its own, you know, su- supposed connections, mentioning the interview and everything, that then the communications were, oh, yeah, 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 you've you got to pull this film. I mean, Wired have done a sort of a big sort of look into this, and uh, they've concluded, and I, f- I find their arguments quite quite compelling, that actually it could might not be North Korea, it's just hacktivists who have basically seen an opportunity. But then, you know, could there be a connection to North Korea? Could North Korea support it in some way? A senior administration official in the United States said North Korea was... And I quote, centrally involved. Mm-hmm. But no one said it on the record, and it certainly wasn't the FBI. North Korea did say when this happened that they had nothing to do with it, but that they were some righteous dudes. Yeah. Words to that effect. It may have yes. just been the word righteous. It's, yeah. It was the righteous deed of supporters and sympathizers. It's not typical hacktivist activity, though, because I, I understand that the it's not just hacking Sony. They, mm. They've actually destroyed Sony's entire yeah. IT infrastructure. And it's a scorched earth thing, which it yeah. doesn't seem to tally. You're with. Right, I look, yeah. I don't know anything about, um, you know, hacking particularly. I can barely turn my laptop on. Mm. So, but it doesn't sound like, it does sound malicious and targeting mm. of one particular organization yeah. for reasons that are yet to be revealed. But this is, I mean, you know, there's been people, Judd Apatow's been particularly vocal, hasn't he? Of course. On, about this particular release and, 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 and the, you know, people are pointing yeah. to the great dictator and saying, you know, they weren't afraid of Hitler back in the 1940s. Mm. I think admittedly, America wasn't at war with Nazi Germany at that point, but everyone else was, so it's slightly different. But um, Also, the wars have been fought in a slightly different landscape these days, well, a very different battleground. Mm. Hitler couldn't reach into your living room and, 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 and destroy your life just by getting all your personal information at that time. No. So it was a very, very different thing. The war was a very, very distant thing at that point. This is kind of, this is, a, you can absolutely see both sides of the story here. To say for the sake of us, you know, the worst case scenario is that the movie does get released and this group, the Guardians of Peace, whatever they're calling themselves on a particular day, actually do have the means with which to follow through on their threat. According to the FBI, there is no, uh, there's no intelligence, yeah. active intelligence indicating that there is genuinely a plot to bomb or blow up or to storm theatres showing the uh, the interview in the States or wherever it is. But just say, worst case scenario, that that did happen. That, you know, the movie opens Christmas Day and one, two, three more cinemas do get hit. Innocent, spe- innocent people get killed. You can absolutely see why they would pull the film. Hmm. But given that, you know, there's a, there's a very real possibility that this is just online bluster, this is just an idle, hollow threat... From people who have destroyed and attacked Sony and, and very effectively in a completely different way, admittedly, um, you know that they don't have explosives, they don't have arms to back up this threat. There is, there's another group. There's another. I've seen a lot of people today on Twitter not criticizing Sony necessarily because, as you say, they've been backed into a corner. Because how can you release a film when no cinema chain is willing to show it? But the criticism is more leveled at the theater chains, mm. capitulating very, very quickly to to a threat that has, according to the FBI, very little to back it up with. There's also the fact to factor in the the already slightly sort of fractious relationship between the exhibitors and the studios as it is, and the you know the issue of of shortening release windows. You know, people are saying maybe you just get this film out on the internet now, get it on VOD right now, yeah. just dump it online. But that you know that I think 
is another issue altogether. That, that, that almost feels like revenge against the exhibitors. It's super complicated. But I mean, as far as precedents are concerned, um, you know, let's say, for instance, Four Lions comes out, right, in this country. Now, no one's talking, everyone's talking about Islamic terrorism and ISIS and, you know, what's happened in Sydney this week. No one's really talking about North Korea as a, as a mainland US terrorist threat, particularly, if this is North Korea. But let's say there is, you know, a film like Four Lions, which is controversial mm. and could be potentially seen to be offensive to people from that kind of fundamentalist background with, you know, terrorist tendencies, should we say. What then? One, one email saying we're going to attack your cinemas that are showing this? What do you do? I mean, it's just... It is a potentially catastrophic precedent, I would say. This is a different situation. I don't think we're going to get a point where if a film comes out in the future, you could just... Joe Bloggs, for example, I don't like that film. I don't, I'm not a fan of what that film's saying or what I think that film is saying, or I'm not a fan of the people behind it. So I'm going to email a studio and say, right, if you release such and such film, I will blow up the cinema. Uh, these guys have given themselves credibility by what they've done to Sony. And I think that's why theatre chains are going, oh, hang on a second. I'm not saying it's an individual sort of lone wolf type scenario necessarily. Mm. I'm saying there are a lot of terrorist groups out there right now that do have credibility and they've, yeah, already, they've already you know, established their credibility. So I don't know. I'm just saying that it's an unusual one. I don't remember this happening before. No, I mean, and also you talk about precedents. Uh, there has been already some collateral damage from this whole business, which is Gore Verbinski's film, Pyongyang starring Steve Carell, has been pulled from production. Fox Regency. They don't want to go ahead and make it. Uh, Pyongyang being the capital of North Korea and the film. I'm not exactly sure of the plot of the, the film, but it clearly has a North Korean connection. But yeah, v Verbinski said, I find it ironic that fear is eliminating the possibility to tell stories that depict our ability to overcome fear. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's a weird, strange, fascinating and worrying scenario. But, you know... I, 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 not wanting to trivialise this all too much, but I don't, know, I don't want to prejudge the interview. We've not seen the interview. But you wonder if they would have pulled it if it was Bond, <laughs> you know, or a different studio in Star Wars or something like that. Imagine what would the face-off be for a film of that scale, a tentpole. But equally, you could say the stakes would just get higher for them, in a way, for the... The exhibit, you're right, for the mm. exhibitors, it's probably an easier decision for mm. financial reasons. That's why I wonder why, you know, on what basis they made this decision as a group. You know, have they, have they, are they privy to information that there's a credible threat? I don't know. We don't even know whether, you know, who's behind this whole thing. So mm. it's difficult, but God, it doesn't help Sony. Yeah. Um, anyway, James Franklin it's, can keep himself busy, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, this whole thing, has it escalated and escalated and just, you know, initially you were thinking, oh, this, you know, just another James Franco performance arts done, isn't it? But this is this thing is just wow, getting massively out of hand. I feel I feel you know a great degree of sympathy for Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg in particular. I mean, uh, you know, this is a film that you know they must be asking themselves a number of questions about: Did it need to be Kim Jong Un? Did it need to be North Korea? Could we not have just made up an another country? Could we have not just made up a dictator? But at the same time, we'll be going: This is just a dumb comedy. It doesn't deserve this. Why us? And, you know, Seth Rogen in particular, because he's obviously the more high profile of the writing-directing duo, will have this following him around for the rest of his career. There are people I feel more sorry for than those two, I've got to be honest, but, yeah, I mean, it is a... Yeah, obviously, it is a... <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the grand context of the world, yes, there are people I feel more sorry for than Seth Rogen, but at the same time, this is a man 
you know, an artist, if you will, even if it is, uh, you know, an R-rated comedy with, you know, boob jokes and fart jokes galore, uh, from what we've been led to believe, this is a man who's who's made a film and through no fault of his own, it's it's been it's been pulled. It's been it's been effectively crushed. There were some and, really uh, good jokes in the trailer. This is the other thing. It's like you know, so exhibitors in the states are presumably going. Well, there's there's now a sort of uh, a, you know air of a, what's the word atmosphere of fear around this movie. So people may not come and see it. They may not go in and see it in the grow in the numbers in which we had it initially anticipated. But now there's a groundswell of people who <laughs> my Twitter feeds full of people going. I didn't want to see the interview before, but now. Fuck those guys! I'm going to see it. I want to see it, and I want to see it on in in theaters. Uh, solidarity, brother. Um, it could be huge on DVD if they release it. Are they allowed to release it on DVD? They're releasing it in North Korea via balloon drops. Are they? Yeah. Parachuting it in. Yep. I like it. Somebody made um, <clears throat> somebody made the point that is it Naked Gun two and a half? The opening <clears throat> ten minutes of that film now. Well, naked rumba. You mean Naked Gun? Yes. Where Frank Drebin takes on all the yes of the that world. one. Naked yes. Gun, was that the first one? Was that the first yes. scene in the first film? First scene in the first film. Was it? What a, what a, what a way to he open. Fights Gorbachev, the Ayatollah Hominay. Gorbachev, um, I always thought Gorbachev was a bit uh, on fire. Gorbachev Idi Amin. He, <laughs> What's Gorbachev in there? It's Idi Amin in the face. He rubs Gorbachev's birthmark off his face and goes, I knew it. Uh, he also in there, Gaddafi's in there. Um, it's a really interesting scene. Uh, but now but, you think... But they're doubles. They are doubles. They're actors yeah. playing those people. They are doubles. Um also, one last thing about this movie is, is that there is a, a you know, and again, a kind of, you know, two-fingered assault on the on the hackers, uh, although a weird one, I guess. Um, a major moment from the movie has been released online, I guess is a big F you to Kim Jong-un. So if you want to go and look for a certain moment from the interview, it's online. It's there. Hmm. Not leaked online. It's, it's properly online. It's it's, it's probably on, okay. Well, it's not properly online. It's been, someone's put it online, but I don't think uh, it's the. I don't think it's the hackers. Okay. Well, in other news. In other news, Orlando Blue might be back for Pirates Five or Six or whatever number we're on right oh now. Oh my God! Are you serious? I don't know. He is actually. <laughs> I knew that because I'd already hacked into your email. Hacked into the Empire Online website, which has oh. news on. It. What was no. his character's name in that? Will Turner. Will Turner. That's it. That's Will it. Turner. Yeah. Will Turner. Will Turner. You see, he might be back. I just anything that well, we without, say now without that's a news story just seems so like oh is is that news? I suppose it is, isn't it? Mm. He may be back. He may not be back. So he's not being punished for his part in that interview viral video promo thing, which came out a, a month ago, which was uh, the James Franco character Dave Skylark interviewing Orlando Bloom as Orlando Bloom on Skylark tonight, his his show, and in fairness is dreadful uh that promo is shocking it's where comedy goes to die um so but it's good to see he's getting beyond that and uh that the guardians of peace are letting him resume his career which is good chris pratt there's a picture of him with a raptor <laughs> that's good that's great big lebowski and the likes of ferris bueller and rio bravo and quite a few others have been selected for possibly going into the national film registry again doesn't really seem like news does it of congress yes Congress seems like a good place to borrow DVDs. <laughs> they've got an extensive library. Uh, they're moving up to Blu-rays now, actually. The whole democracy does, thing doesn't work out. They could set up their own blockbuster. Mm. So there you go. And the new Empire's out. <laughs> Again. It's, it's not technically out. By the time people... It's no. out next Thursday. Yeah. If you're listening to this uh, before Christmas, it comes out. After Christmas, it comes out when December... 31st. 31st. New Year's Eve. Comes out New Year's Eve. Wow. Yeah. Look at that. 
That's amazing. So, you know, if you have any party plans, if you're going to see in the new year with some friends, maybe some family, maybe a glass of baby sham, who knows, whatever it is you want to do, cancel those plans. Yeah. Get the new Empire uh, iPad and um, what's it called? Paper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Magazine. Magazine. Yeah. Get get one of those. And just, you know, as, as midnight comes around, as the, the bongs begin to chime, you know. <laughs> as the phrase just, goes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just, uh, you know, just slip it open. Page thirty four, and just have yourself a little one person party. That's why. That's my advice. What's it? What's an Empire magazine this month, Dan? Well, it's the um, the twenty or actually twenty one films you have to see in twenty fifteen. Big movies. <clears throat> Can you guess what the twenty uh, first film is? The interview. No. <laughs> the Force Awakens. There has been an awakening. Yes. Uh, cool. Awesome. Um, yeah. What, what, uh, yeah. But we head up with Mad Max Fury Road. Mm -hmm. Tom Hardy. As the new, or not, kind of not the new, but as Max. <laughs> all the good. big, most exciting films of the year. And it's our Oscar special. Uh -huh. So we gather together uh, all the, uh, you know, the, the hot tickets, the hot noms, possible noms. Possible, very, yeah, very possible noms. The hot, very possible noms, exactly. Yeah. So who's, who's in there? Who are the, who are the people we're nominating? Well, we're looking at uh, Foxcatcher in there. Yeah. We're looking at Eddie Redmayne uh -huh. for The Theory of Everything. Yeah. Um, we are looking at uh, Jessica Chastain, Patricia Arquette. Uh, these are all, we've talked to them all. Yeah. And, Bradley um, Cooper's in there, isn't he? Bradley, Bradley Cooper. Bradley yeah. Cooper is in there. Bradley Cooper for American Sniper, which is a 100% shoe-in <laughs> for the Oscars this year. Absolutely. Uh, David Oyelowo yep. is, uh, is in there as well, isn't he? David Oyelowo is in the issue. And Reese Witherspoon as well, we've got as part of the uh, Oscar special. David Oyelowo so, for Interstellar. Yep. No, for Selma. Honestly, Phil. Into, did, oh, into Selma. Selma, uh, I saw last night, uh, is phenomenal. Uh, the movie's very, very good. Oh, Yellow is amazing mm. um, in that film as Dr. Martin Luther King. First time, uh, there was a Q&A afterwards. Uh, I wasn't hosting it. Uh, there was a Q&A afterwards hosted by Empire's own Angie Arrigo. And it's the first time in years of going to these things and hosting these things that I've ever seen the actor or director in question given a standing ovation by the audience really? uh, as he came on. Maybe they were giving Angie a standing ovation. I'm not entirely sure, but it's, it seemed to be more for David O'Yellowillen than, uh, than Angie Arrigo. Yeah, this, this is a, a performance, I think, that uh, will possibly be the Oscar frontrunner this year. He's phenomenal in it. So, uh, so yeah, so there you go. £3.99, loads of other great stuff in there as well. Oh, yeah. We don't actually have the issue here. Oh, and I do know one thing. Liam Neeson is a pint of milk and is very, very funny. Yeah. Speaking of very funny, Lord and Miller are in there with a really clever photo shoot. Lord yeah, really that's great. Some great photo shoots all around, actually. Yeah, that sounds like a really good issue. And is as I always say, there's a great 80-word uh, book review from Ali Plum. In the, uh, is there? The is there really? Back of it. I don't know, I haven't read that bit. I will have to check that one out. Well, that sounds amazing. Fee alone. Can I have a copy? Uh, yeah, sure, when they come in. They haven't come in yet. We don't have them. Oh. I, I just did this all from memory. Can you believe that? <laughs> I, know, I, know. I know. It's astonishing. Well, you are the features editor, yeah. so you know, I would expect you... <laughs> literally, if you ask me what's in my yeah. section, I could not tell you. Do you ever get the thing where people go, you know, maybe you meet someone, maybe at a party or like, you know, in a lay-by, wherever it is you meet people, um, and they go, oh, hey, what do you do? And you go, I'm a film journalist. And they mm -hmm. go, all oh, right, so what's, what's good? What's good at the moment? And I can never yeah. tell them because even though we do this as a weekly mm. thing, this this actually helped. This this has really helped. But because we work on a monthly magazine, we work like six weeks ahead, sometimes six to eight weeks ahead. 
So I can tell you what's out in February, but I can't really tell you what's out now. So yes. sorry about that. Plus, we're in a lay-by, so can we just cut to the chase? <laughs> yeah. can, we, can we just get on with whatever it is we met here to do? Can I please <laughs> have a hot dog? No, not like that. <laughs> All right. Thanks for asking. Okay, okay, enough shenanigans. Often described as a visionary genius, Dan is, of course, sorry, uh, Burton is, of course, the man behind such eye-popping, dark, anarchic treats as Batman, Beetlejuice, Batman Returns, Ed Wood, Mars Attacks, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Ed with Hands. if I left anything out. Mm. That'll do. Any of the crackers? Did you say Ed Wood? I wasn't listening. I did say Ed Wood. Okay, yes. good. Ed Wood. Yeah. Okay, Ed Wood. Uh, but he's toning down the visual pizzazz for his new movie, Big Eyes, which tells the story of how Margaret Keane was responsible for a pop art boom in the 1960s and how her husband, Walter... Uh, sought to keep her in what was then regarded as her place in the background while he hogged all the glory and the money. We usually say with an interviewee, when he came to London, we talked to him, but Burton actually lives in London, so uh, Phil and Ali spoke to him when he um, lived in London recently. Enjoy. Play Misty for me. <laughs> Coming up shortly. Thank you, Chisholm. Right. We got a great show for you today. We've got the, the early morning DJs and the late night ones. Which one? Ooh, I'm more of a late night one at the yeah, moment. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I mean, I can, I can zip it up. Yeah. Get you away. And zany. Yeah. We can do like. Zany and wacky. Yeah. We need some of those. Well, let's do the introduction. Let's get formal. Yeah. We're here <laughs> with Tim Burton to talk about big eyes. I think that's pretty much what we need to know. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Welcome to Empire Podcast, Tim. Absolute pleasure to have you here. For those who don't know who. The Keens are. Can you just give us a little brief précis of who these two? Let's call them both artists. <laughs> okay, let's let's do that. The artwork was something I grew up with in in Burbank. It was very pre- it was what I would call kind of suburban art. I mean, it was the only kind of artwork I was exposed to as a child, unfortunately. But uh, it was just very present. It was like Big Brother looking at you, and 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 I like everybody up until about mid nineteen nineties thought Walter Keene was the artist, and uh, even though it was documented in newspapers their, their story and the court case and all of that, he was known to be the the, the creator of the waif like children when in fact you know she was the one, and it's sort of their story of their dysfunctional relationship and the sort of mutant children they created <laughs> on canvas. Is it hard to overstate just how big this was? Well, it was, it, in America anyway, it was huge, very present. I mean, you could go to people's houses and prints were in the living rooms and bedrooms and doctor's office, dentist's office, supermarkets. So it was very much present. And and at the same time, quite popular. I mean, he, he the keen, Walter really sort of was at the forefront of, you know, printing, but even like Warhol, you know, like the, mm. the whole printing idea, you, you know, really took off with with the keen work and uh so so it was a very you know just very i don't know and i i had the same response to the artwork that a lot of people had a lot of people really loved it because it was there and living and stuff and a lot of people hated it more than life itself you know <laughs> wanted to rip them off the walls and run out of the room screaming you know so it had a real polarized effect on people it's a very interesting story my question to you is why wasn't this made into a film before even though it was documented in newspapers it sort of flew under the radar like i said i mean all this stuff happened years before and even now i was you know in- fan of the artwork in a in a peculiar way uh, I didn't know the story. So it was one of those things that really kind of flew under the radar. And uh, and I think, you know, like, for instance, in the courtroom, which people don't believe, is they think it's like, oh, we made it into, a, you know, this jokey comedy. I mean, we toned it down based on the transcripts. I mean, 
you know, it was... Uh, he actually had his mouth well, they, they, the shut. Was gonna sh- no, the, well, he's he threatened, threatened to. Yeah, no, but I mean, and he did do the thing of going back and forth and, you know, mm. cross-examining himself. I mean, it was... We know. should explain that Walter go takes takes his wife to court for libel and slander. Yes. And, and, and as soon as the libel judgment is... Uh, is, is passed. His lawyers leave, and he d- he opts to defend himself, having yeah. knowing. So you yeah. know, it's challenging for you as a director because it could be just grand vaudeville. But well, well, it serious is serious dimension. No, no, absolutely. No, I mean we tried to to treat it serious. I mean, even though it, but that's the thing. I mean, even even sort of reining it in, you know, which we did. You, you know, yeah. people still go like. The hell, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's almost like a chaplain, a moment of like silent comedy, this whole thing. The yeah, way it, but the way I mean, plays. like I said, it's but that's the thing about mm. the, these strange true stories that Scott Larry kind of uh, uncovered. You, you you don't believe it in a way, but it's you know, as they say, truth is stranger than fiction, and in this case. Yes. <laughs> it is. It's funny. I mean, Angelina Jolie's uh, Unbroken is coming out, and she had the same thing. I have to get rid of things because the audience won't believe them. Yeah. And, and, and this is your second sort of biopic, I guess, um, to use that horrible yeah. term, yeah. after Red Wood. I wonder what, which one did you have to d- dial down more? <laughs> I, I would say this one, because uh, it's, it, 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 the Ed Wood story was much more just sort of a vibe of it. This one was just a bit more... Be, it was a bit more based on the events with the whole courtroom and then the, you know, having to paint to sort of solve the, the, the case, you know, I mean, all of that. And, and this is the sort of dysfunction of everybody, the whole world thinking it was Walter. I mean, the the story itself is just so unbelievable that that the, the tone, I think, on this one was a bit trickier. Yes. So something really fascinating in in this character of Walter, who we're going to get onto the fact that you you cast Christoph Waltz for that role, but he is a liar and he is the villain of the piece. Mm. But at the same time, nowadays he'd be acclaimed as a kind of a marketing and PR genius. Absolutely. I mean, he's there's more in Damien Hurst probably coming from him Mm. than from her. Absolutely. In fact, I don't, and I think she would even acknowledge this, Margaret. I mean, without him, it would have never have come to light. Probably, you know, and the whole printing thing. I mean, it was very much at the forefront of 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 any kind of art movement. And whether people like it or hate it, I mean, that that happened. And also, all the knockoffs. I remember at the time, you know, there were Keens, and then there was all these other Keen wannabes. So I mean, it certainly spawned a movement. It spawned a certain. It was popular. And I mean, like the quote. And there's a quote in the beginning of the film where Warhol says from Andy Warhol saying, like, "Well, if so many." people didn't like it you know you know talking about art uh you know it has to be good because so many people wouldn't like it you know so yeah. there it sort of brings up the question about what is art and what is like relationships and also they're all kind of tied together for me and in, into one kind of weird package you could ask that question of like the transformers franchise <laughs> we can ask about anything really you know <laughs> I mean, what I mean? but, yeah <laughs> but it is it is a you know i mean it's devilish for you as a filmmaker who who has critics you know evaluating his work every time he makes something mm. and audiences that respond to it or don't respond to it accordingly well, I, yeah. how do you you know what is important well i mean i had that happen to me you know when they had this this moma show of of my stuff at, you know at moma you know and 
you know, the art, you know, I, you know, I, I would be about 10, I was lab, you know, kind of 10 times worse than Keen. I mean, this is an art. What the hell is this doing in MoMA? You know, what the fuck is going on here? You know, so that was pretty across the board in terms of critical response. And yet at the same time, they had the highest attendance of any show <laughs> since like a Picasso show. So, you know, you get this sort of mixture of love and I've been embraced by love and hate my whole life. <laughs> it's all Helena's work as well. <laughs> I get it. Well, you know, I get, I've been, I think I've been fairly lucky from Pee Wee's Big Adventure to be, you know, where it's been, you know, 10 worst films of the year, you know, and then at the same time, uh, some people like it. So I've been, I'm, I'm well used to that sort of. <laughs> mm. response does it feel like the, the, there's a, there's a, almost a current in hollywood then the tide changes and it moves in a different direction it, this seems to be the the era of the franchise now and the, super, <laughs> the superhero movie well and, and you made your batman way before that yeah and i was very lucky uh in the first back in 19 whatever 89 whatever the word franchise hadn't even been created yet <laughs> ah, ah the good old day <laughs> now you did uh, you never heard that word it wasn't until Batman Returns that that word started to come into mm. play, and that's when I started to get into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> what's that McDonald's asking? What's that black stuff coming out of the penguin's mouth? You can't sell Happy Meals with that shit coming out. It's like, yeah, well, what are you putting in your burgers, mate? One of my favorite things in the whole world is the, uh, I call it the duck tank, but from from Batman Returns, that duck thing... I just adore it, and I just want to personally say yeah. thank you well, for creating well, thank that. You, well, thank you. I mean, and but you know, it doesn't sell Happy Meals, man. No, I'll it does you. not. <laughs> it's, sure, it could sell bath toys, I guess, but uh, whatever. <laughs> Amy Adams obviously is at an easel for most of the film, a lot of the film, shall I say? Did she actually get in any way good at doing a basic? Yes, absolutely. She she spent a day. She spent basically a long day with Margaret, mm. but she. Picked up a lot of stuff. Amy's a very quick study, and mm. uh, she picked up a lot of both, both Margaret's character and especially, again, as I said, she's very private. So Amy really got that and picked up some painting tips and the signature and everything. No, she, you know, she 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 could she could actually carry on <laughs> once Margaret is, is gone. Mar- Margaret, Margaret cameos in the film, doesn't she? I didn't she's realize. Got a little, yeah, she's she's in the park bench. Little... Yeah, yeah, just in the back. But, uh, you know, she gave her blessing on her. Scott and Larry had worked, you know, dealt with her quite a, a lot, you know, showing her the script. So, uh, you know, she showed up on the set one day, you know, in San Francisco. But, you know, she felt, I think, in good hands. And when she saw the movie, which we were all quite nervous about, she was, you know... I think the most amazing response was that oh she she felt it and and she felt because we weren't there obviously so it was kind of through her where we got the sense of where things were accurate for her emotionally and things so that was that was great. A lot of this film is set in the 1950s, which is one of those it seems like a movie eras. Like how could that really have happened? Was it fun going back there? And how difficult is it to make San Francisco 1950s again? Out of Vancouver, Vancouver yeah. yeah. <laughs> that wasn't easy. <laughs> but uh, we got to shoot a few days in San Francisco. But not that because the vibe of it is important. Yeah, you're right. You know that, that's the whole thing. And I mean, like I grew up as a child in that time, but I remember it very, very well. You know, it's part of your DNA and that kind of thing. Where you know it's like especially suburbia kind of thing. 
a lot of women didn't work and, and a lot of women, you know, it was it definitely was, I mean, it still got the issues today, but it was very much more extreme at that time. And it was, but it was fun to kind of, because that is part of the vibe. When you look at those, those paintings, they are of that time. And mm. it's important mm. that you try to try to capture the, the feel of that time. There's a lovely sequence in the supermarket where where the camera pans past the row of Campbell's soups, which got a big laugh in the screening we were at. Yeah. And that looked like it must have been a lot of fun to recreate. Yeah, you know what? It was a strange day because that that, that day stands out for me because it was usually we were like running all over three, four moves a day. And that was sort of the end of a day and just shooting in the supermarket with this weird thing it's i know that was very memorable to i don't know it just brought me back to that time that scene itself felt very much like i was back there again you know super, <laughs> kind of supermarket lighting and all. <laughs> that's why i don't go into supermarkets anymore <laughs> what does a tim burton family christmas look like well we have lots of japanese monsters on the christmas tree which look like ornaments so you know it's a bit nightmare before christmasy but uh who yeah. decorates the tree is that you? We all do. No, we we all chip in. Yeah, we just throw whatever's in the house on the tree. <laughs> oh, yeah. Depends on the size of the tree. There's an amazing. Um, <laughs> I think they've taken it down in the past few years, but there used to be a Japanese uh, shopping mall that had a giant Christmas tree in the shape of Godzilla. Oh, where, where was that? It was somewhere in Tokyo, but they took oh, it down. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they always, you know, they always got something like that. I mean, it's. I just got back from there, um, and it's amazing how much like. Uh, over the years, like Halloween and stuff, has is has sort of infiltrated other countries. I mean, mm. it's it's amazing because I mean, when I first came here, it wasn't a big deal, but it's become quite a, a holiday in lots of places. They don't always get it right. When I was in <laughs> the one time I was in Japan, there was Jesus on the cross wearing a um, a Santa hat yeah. as he uh, entered. A... Uh, you were going to say an Ultraman outfit. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is Ultraman in reality. Before we let you go. Next project, you're not directing uh, through the Looking Glass, no. but you are producing it. Yep. How hands-on are you with that? Oh, I have my hands all, all over the it. actors and just In fact, I, <laughs> I'm in trouble for that, so I have had to take my hands off. Okay, you, that's you can get into trouble for that nowadays for sure. if you've read, I don't know, some newspapers about things. Yeah. <laughs> Because that, that's wrapping up about now. That was is yeah. it James uh, yeah. Bobin. Or? Bobbin, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it, it was strange for me because I going to said see all these characters that that it, but I I like James very much and mm. I thought he had a a good take on it. So uh, yeah, it's it's I think it's better off. Things now I want to see uh, Tim Burton Muppets film. I mean that's that's what I really <laughs> want to see. I was in the I was an extra in the first Muppet movie. I had my hands in two puppets in the. The oh. first Muppet movie way back when. Wow. Which ones? The Rainbow Connection. Were you in the Rainbow Connection? I was, in that big pit of... Muppetry. Yeah. That's, that's great news. That's a great fight. Tim, thank you so much. <laughs> no, so, yeah. No. Well, I've done my Muppet movie. I'm pleased. I, that, I, that is so something I'm going to bring up with people. That's a great fact. I think we have to wrap up. Don't we, we do indeed. Yeah. Thank you so Tim, much. Thank you. That was a real Next pleasure, slide, guys. Nice to see you. Uh, was he good? Well, nice, nice guy. Tim really Burton. good. Yeah. Yep. I immediately went and got a haircut. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Really? He was in really. He's a reputation for being a little shy, but he was in ebullient, ebullient. I think form. he's. I think he's overcoming that over in recent years. He's been on great form in interviews, didn't he? He came to the Empire Awards a few years ago. 
wasn't there a point where he met both you and Nick and he just couldn't grasp That's right, the concept I about of your brothers? No. He just couldn't do it. It was late, I'd be fair to him, it was quite late in the day. And we said we're brothers and he, was, he looked at us and he, he thought for a moment and he just looked confused and he went, brothers? <laughs> brothers? We were like, yeah. Right, good. Uh, so let's start now. We've got a whole ton of movies to get through. Um, we come back on January 9th. For some reason, movies are going to be released in our absence. Uh, so we have the movies that come out this week, December 19th. We've got the movies that come out on Boxing Day, and there's a whole ton of them. And then there's the movies that come out on January 1st and January 2nd as well. We'll review the big ones on January 1st and January 2nd in our Jan 9th podcast. So that's The Woman in Black, The Angel of Death, The Theory of Everything, and Birdman. And we'll talk about them very, very briefly. We'll say that they're good, and you should go and see them, particularly Birdman. Uh, but we'll we'll focus mainly on the big ones coming out on the 19th and 26th, because otherwise we're going to be here forever. Let's start with Big Eyes. Who wants to talk about Big Eyes? Bum, 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 bum. Polly bum, Polly bum. I'd love to. Yes, Margaret Keane was a... Well, not she wasn't famous, but she was known because she was the husband of another Keane. The husband? She was the husband. She was the wife of the other Keane. But no, she, she, as played by Amy Adams in this rather, as you say, unburtony biopic, is this single mother who leaves uh, a husband and moves to San Francisco to try and make her way. And she tries to find a career and a life, um, restart, start fresh. So she starts painting these paintings that she always has, but she starts selling them in markets. Big, big, big eyes, wet, round, tear-filled eyes of these waifs in the street. They're kitsch, they're gaudy, is it good, is it bad, whatever it is, I'm looking at it factor, and they were loved. Not immediately, of course. It needed someone to sell them, but someone who sold them was her husband-to-be, as played by Christoph Waltz. And he meets her, falls for her, they fall in love, and they become this strange partnership where he sold the pictures, but then, as he was selling them, people presumed that he was making them. And he convinces her, he convinces Christoph Waltz in his big way, convinces Amy Adams in her meek, submissive way, that this is the sensible thing to do, because what's better is that the, the fans, that the people who want to buy it, can buy it. And if this helps them find out about it, great. Now, we talk about this in the interview. He isn't all bad. He is a plagiarist and he is not a great person. But he did help her sell paintings and he did help her to an extent. They're both very rich. Well, they, well he isn't anymore. He wasn't. But he, he did help and he did start this PR factory of selling prints. Prints at that point in the 60s, 50s weren't such a common thing. Mm when they discovered that when they put posters up on the wall or on pillars, hey, come to our gallery, people were pulling down the posters because they wanted to have those pictures on the wall. Anyway, it's kind of telling this story in a rather, not a flat way, there are flashes of colour, but it's reasonably pedestrian, I would say. Uh, it's an interesting story. I wonder whether it might have been a better, maybe BBC TV movie. Uh, I know that's damning it with very, very faint words, but <laughs> it's... It's not quite cinematic enough for me to justify both Tim Burton's talents, Christoph Waltz's talents, and Amy Adams. Mm. It works. It's a film that's perfectly satisfactory. You will find out stuff you didn't know, and you will think about what it is to be an artist and what it is to be a commercial artist and all that kind of stuff, and mm. selling and commerce and, and the swinging 60s and what you'll do for fame and blah, blah, blah. But it's ultimately not quite as good as you'd want for this sort of thing. Uh, there is a scene that we talk about in the interview where... Amy Adams' character, Margaret, has one of these fever dreams where she sees her 
character's big eyes in the real world. She's going around a supermarket and then suddenly she sees these big eyes and you get this, wow, yes, Tim Burton, we'll have a bit of that. The cashier girl is checking through her stuff at the uh, at the checkout desk and she's got these massive big eyes and it's very, there's something to it. Otherwise, it's it's just okay, really. Amy Adams, I would say, is the best of the two leads. Uh, I think she's um, quite affecting as this hard-working, um, push-down person. But Christoph Waltz, unfortunately, goes goes to town, doesn't he, Phil, on the, um, mm. on the kind of pantomime mm. uh, acting, which has won him <clears throat> yeah. in different guises. Many Oscars. And I've heard Oscar buzz about this role, which to me is bad baffling because he capsizes the film, I think, with this a very broad, waltzy performance. And it overshadows Amy Adams, and you're right, she's very she's subtle and very she good. She's very subtle. And it's a, it's a very precise performance of different... You know, she starts off as a sort of a battered wife and she re-establishes herself and then she has this push and pull and her daughter doesn't know that she is painting these things. And there's a kind of there's deceit within the own family unit. There's lots of interesting things. And the idea, I think we talked about in the interview, that, that Christoph Waltz's character, that her husband is actually kind of a genius in his own right. Mm. He was a sort of early PR genius in the times before PR. You know, a bit of a Don Drapery type affair going on there. But it doesn't really tap into the, the, the interesting sort of potential that the story has and it just kind of it goes by the numbers a bit and there's the odd Burtony moment but not enough so let's move on to our releases out this week we've already heard from Jim Carrey Jeff Daniels and Peter Farrelly about Dumb and Dumber 2 um, I think I'm only one in the room who's seen Dumb and Dumber 2 let me ask you a question Chris please do what did you think of the first Dumb and Dumber film? I love the first Dumb and Dumber What would you film. give it in stars? I'd give it four English stars right I think the Farrelly brothers it's kind of interesting their career because they, they they came out of the blocks racing out of the blocks with Dumb and Dumber which is fantastic Kingpin their their greatest movie Kingpin which is just if you haven't seen it mm. hilarious I think, uh, I think that's my favourite it's it's yeah, their best it's, 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 it's my favourite of hilarious yeah. it's their best movie um, and uh, there's something about Mary then soon followed after that then there was Me, Myself and Irene which isn't entirely successful but has some incredibly funny moments in it and Jimmy Carrey just doesn't hold back at all. Since then, it's been a succession of misfires and films that haven't quite worked and films that have a high concept but don't really fire in all cylinders and they're all an absolute disaster. I mean, they are... Peter Farley particularly was heavily involved in Movie 43 and Three Stooges a couple of years ago wasn't that great either. And there's a sense that they're not that great as craftsmen. And if you look at this movie, and it actually feels like they've regressed... Uh, they're really nice guys, and they, you know, they're, they're, they've made some fantastic films. But uh, it, it, you just look at this film, and it's very clumsily made. The acting is very, very bad, apart from the two leads, and it's just kind of thrown together in a way that they said it wasn't going to be. Uh, and I already said in the podcast a couple of weeks ago that Horrible Bosses Two is a better Dumb and Dumber sequel than, than, than Dumb and Dumber Two, and Dumb and, and actually shares some of the same writers as well, which is really interesting. It almost makes you feel were they holding. That <laughs> they have like a, a pot of dumb and dumber jokes and they just threw some towards Horrible Bosses too, kept the best ones for that, and then put the bad ones towards Dumb and Dumber too. It's not a complete washout. We gave it two stars, uh, which is probably about right. However, it isn't a complete washout. It is very funny at times. And it has, for me, one of the, the in fact, the funniest joke in both movies. A joke that destroyed me, even though I saw this movie on my own in a cinema at 11 a.m. on a wet, rainy, cold morning, which is absolutely the worst condition to see a film in. Uh, you know, seeing a comedy in an empty cinema. There was literally only me and a projectionist. I went I was in this place in New York and I went to see, I, you know, I went up the stairs at the Universal Building and uh, 
you know, I was expecting someone to come out, expecting loads of people, and it was literally just put on for me. And the old projection that says guy in his 80s comes out with a walking stick going, you right? You, you, you're right, I'm from, I'm from all where I'm from. Hi, you, George. You're right, you're right. Go on, get in there, lad, and I'll put on a movie. And uh, I'm like, where are you from, mate? And he's just like, yeah. Like, just the worst circumstance to watch a movie. And there's this joke about halfway through that just destroyed me. Um, and it's a few jokes like that. But otherwise, Carrie and Daniels, yeah, there's something about watching them at the age they are now acting the way that Harry and Lloyd do that just doesn't have the charm of the first outing. Guys that old shouldn't be that stupid. And you just, it, it, it has a certain indignity. Which, and the jokes aren't as good by uh, bar a couple of absolute belters. So what are you going to tell the guys in the lay-by? Uh, yeah. Wait for TV? Wait for TV. Stream it, maybe. Wait for TV. No, you know, go, do, do see it, especially if you're a fan of the Farley Brothers and you're a fan of Dumb and Dumber. Go and see it. But uh, do expect to be slightly disappointed. It's two hours long, isn't it? It's 109 minutes long. Didn't feel that. It didn't feel that way. But it did. It, it absolutely gets burdened down by a plot. It's a very plotty film for a film that absolutely does not need to be very plotty. Next film, under our beady big eyes, <laughs> is Angelina Jolie's Angelina Unbroken. Jolie. From Angelina Jolie. A tale of a stirring, soul-stirring tale yes. of survival in World War II. A true story, no less. Tell us about that. Yes, it is. How did Great. you know? As you know, the second film is a bigger step up in scale. She's surrounded by top people, Roger Deakins Six. on cinematography, um, Alexander Desplat, Coen Brothers script. It's got, even more importantly, a terrific cast led by Jack O'Connell. It's been Jack O'Connell's year in a lot of ways. He's mm. had Startup, 71, and this is his first proper big Hollywood blockbuster. And he plays... Don't, don't forget 300, Rise of an Empire. Yeah, oh, he, he was in that. This is his first big proper Hollywood blockbuster, and it... it it's a great job. It's difficult because he's playing an Italian-American and he's got the voice right, his hair's darker. This guy, Louis Zamprini, was an athlete he competed in the Berlin Olympics. He ends up ditching in the Pacific during the Second World War on a bombing, on a bombing rescue mission and drifting across the Pacific with two of his fellow air crew uh, for a very long time. Um, survives that, gets picked up and rescued, but unfortunately by a Japanese destroyer. Mm. Is that one of those good news, bad news jokes? <laughs> you know... And gets put in a prison camp, and there he meets the man who becomes his nemesis. Who, and again, this is all a true story, but it's almost one of those stories that's kind of they've had to cut down some of the truth because it is just not believable. The whole story just seems a bit, bit far fetched. If you wrote this, no one would believe it. It is exactly yeah. that, and I think Angelina Jolie's talked about the fact that she's had they had to cut down some of the stuff. Him punching a shark. Him punching the shark in the face, of course. And the shark punching him back. That was the bit that no one believed. And um, he ends up facing off against, and this is where it gets a bit kind of Merry Christmas from Mr. Lawrence, mm. probably more than Bridge on the River Quiet. It's not in that caliber. Okay. Against a Japanese rock star, Miyavi, who um, plays the Japanese prisoner of war camp commandant. Um, first time, I mean, he's like a lot of great, a lot of rock stars, he translates very naturally. Probably like Bowie in some regards mm. in you know the Nick Rogue film. Um, the man who fell to earth. He has that kind of ethereal uh, quality to his performance and there's a lot of subtext there that, that this first-timer managed to convey. Two good actors going head-to-head in some great scenes in the Prisoner of War camp. The directing is solid. It's a solid movie. It's a, it's a, it's a boy's own yarn, I guess you could say, with some very tough stuff in it. Does it have the problem that because his story is so kind of, you know, mythical, legendary, 
but true. Mm. Uh, the, so many elements of it have kind of seeped into culture and seeped into storytelling since. And the, the, actually, you're coming back to the original story, the original mm. POW triumph story, and you've got this kind of... The, I feel like I've seen this before. Kind it's of the John Carter of Mars syndrome, I uh, guess you could say. Yeah, mate, yeah, yeah. A little bit, yeah. And we do find this with biopics, that the, these things have become, you know, they've become part of the of the fabric of cinema. Mm. And you've seen superior films that, that tap into this stuff, like Bridge on the River Kwai, mm. for instance. But Bridge on the River Kwai is very much, it's a, it's a film about something, True. you know. It's about, it's about pride and hubris. And this film, I don't know, it's about survival and endurance, um, you could read the book and get that. You can see the film and get that. It doesn't surprise you particularly. But there's some really good stuff. And I, I, I'm a really big fan of Jack O'Connell's. He's got real charisma and he's going to go on and do big things. He's got the accent work, which is always important when you're trying to break into America. We've given it three stars. Um, yes, it's not going to surprise you, this film. But, you know, it's got a terrific opening and it's got some, got some good stuff in it too. So it's, you know, it's not a Christmassy film in many ways, but it's worth a look. Cool, three stars then for uh, Angelina Jolie's Unbroken. Maybe World War II double biller with Brad Pitt's Fury. Yes, or Monuments Man. No, don't. <laughs> don't, don't. Don't do that. Uh, there's so many films to get through. Uh, as I said before, there's a load of films being released. Um, so we're going to go through them fairly, rest them very, very quickly now. Uh, starting off with another one which is out this week, which is Night at the Museum. Oh, yes. Which Ben Stiller and the late Robin Williams and the whole gang are back. They're augmented this time by Rebel Wilson. Our spirit animal, Dan Stevens, as Lancelot, uh, and there, there, there's a plot. So, Dan, yeah. tell us about that. Yeah, it's good fun. It's good fun. I mean, it's, it doesn't really move things on a hell of a lot from the, the previous two nights, the museums. It's all set in one night. Um, <laughs> there's there a museum. Are, there are museum exhibits that come alive, except it's the British Museum, you see. It's the one where they come to London. Cool, but Although, they come I, to London. I couldn't help but roll my eyes when um, they arrive in London. There's a montage of all the London man- landmarks, and they play The Clash. And it's just like, Sean Levy, please, come on, work a little bit harder. Have you not seen the Friends episode where they come to London and they do exactly the same thing? Yes. Um, Have you not moved on from um, that? This this has has two big things, two two, two big things in its favour. One is Dan Stevens as Lancelot, Mm -hmm. who is great, really funny, really good performance. Uh, I don't want to say too much about it because he kind of gets very integral to the plot. You've sold me in that yes. based on that alone. That's and, good. And the other thing is, is um, and I think it made it. It came too late to make uh, our uh, review of the year, but I would say the cameo of the year, the best cameo I've seen all year. It's great. Can we can we have three guesses who it is? Go on then. Is it someone uh, someone connected to Ben Stiller? No. Is it someone we'd be able to easily guess? Uh, it's it's someone who has a connection, but not to Ben Stiller. But that's. What's that? That's like saying nothing. Someone has a connection. Everyone has a connection to everyone else. Is well, it David go. Attenborough? No. Is it a Brit? No. Oh. Not a Brit. Is it um, a, an actual dead person who has come back to life? No. As they do. No. no. no I'm fresh out. Okay. Hitler? No. Bill Clinton? No. Andy Serkis? No. All right, I'm done. Uh, three stars from Night at the Museum, Secret of the Tomb. Uh, sounds good. I actually do kind of want Harmless, to see it. Harmless, silly fun. Yeah, Harmless, just, silly fun. It's just a bit of Christmassy kind of fun, and there's nothing wrong with that, Christopher. Speaking of Christmassy fun, is Exodus Gods and Kings Yay. up next? Uh, ho, ho, ho. Green oh, yes. Giant, Ridley Scott's take on the Ten Commandments. It's the uh, tale of two brothers, Moses, played by Christian Bale, or Chris Bale, as Aaron Sorkin calls him, and um, Ramses the Great, played by Joel Edgerton, and uh, their conflict in ancient Egypt as Moses begins to discover he has a Hebrew heritage mm. and splits apart from his brother 
and uh, yes. becomes a vessel of God, mm. who in this film is a young child, a, a slightly malevolent, slightly creepy young child, and eventually wants to free all the Hebrew slaves in Egypt and does so with the help of God and, and lots of plagues. And it's a big, epic scale. I mean, this is just filmmaking. And like, you know, they say they don't make them like that anymore. Well, they do. They make them like they used to in this movie. Huge physical sets, thousands of extras, but also some amazing CG. So the the, the plague sequences are fantastic. And the, the part of the Red Sea is, is done in a very different way than, than DeMille did it in the Ten Commandments. Um, he goes so, left to right yeah. rather than right to left. He does, yes, he does. Um, yeah, he goes, he goes like side parting rather than centre parting. It's mm. a, yeah, it's very interesting. This film, I yes. think, well, well acted, very, very good performances. It's had some criticism, of course. Taking it aside from that, it's well acted. Mm. You know, it's got great visual sweep, as you might expect. It's a Ridley Scott film. It won't be for everybody. It's a second. It's a second religious movie this year after Darren Aronofsky's Noah that isn't really, I guess, about religion or about God. There's a very interesting thread in the movie where it, it almost posits a theory that Moses' interaction with God might be a form of delusion on his part, and that everything else might be just coincidence. That the Red Sea might not actually be an act of God. It might be because of something else. And so it actually, it's a very interesting film in that regard. Um, and it's also interesting because Ridley Scott's last movie, Prometheus, was about disproving that God exists. And this is a movie about proving that God exists. It's kind of interesting to see that little that little switch. Um, we gave it four stars. Next up, uh, very, very quickly, we'll, you know, the films have come out. Well, actually, no, Phil, you want to talk about very briefly don't, about Contiki, don't you? Which is uh, uh, your favourite Thor film. I've done that again. Hey. Um, yes. So it's out this week on the 19th. It is out this week. That's, that's, you know, let's have a quick... Quick one, quick yeah. one. This film has been, they've been trying to make this film for a very long time. If you're not familiar with the story, it's Tor. It's actually Tora, I believe. I know, but I Tora. Don't. No, I just discovered this. I met his son last God, week. Isn't, isn't that in Exodus? Tora. Not Tor, Tora. No. Tor. Tora. Anyway, Tor Hayadal. He wanted to prove that the Polynesian islands were settled by um, people from Peru originally. It's about 4,000 miles across the Pacific, and they travelled in the old times on a on a raft so it's it's kind of like um you know if you want to watch a, an ocean based double bill unbroken and this would work nicely i think it's a bit life of pi there's bits of jaws in it there's ripping ripping i don't want to use boys own because i'm sure women would like it as well um it, i really got, got to me this film it's very old fashioned bit of filmmaking the cg's the cg's nicely handled it's got a real sense of the majesty of the ocean and, and this power. And also about this guy, Heyerdahl, who has his family and his two young kids back home and his wife, who kind of is just, he's just obsessed with this quest and, and he has to sacrifice something really, really huge to achieve it. And it, it's it, a lot of that's internalised quite nicely by the central actor, Pal Hagen, and, uh, and, the, and the other guys on the boat as well. Um, I really liked it. I gave it four stars. We gave it four stars. In the magazine, and um, I really recommend it on the big mm. screen. It's got, you know, again, it's not going to reinvent the wheel, but it, it feels like an old-fashioned. It feels like a time of Christmas, a time of old-fashioned stuff, and it feels like an old-fashioned seafaring epic that's been in the in the works for a long time. Oscar nominated as well. Oscar nominated. Yeah, it's taken a while to be released in this country. The directors, uh, correct me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, and I will be pronouncing it wrong. So it's a uh, Joachim Joachim Ronning, Joachim Ronning, and Espen Sandberg. Mm. Yes. 
and uh, the Norwegian directors are doing the new Pirates of the Caribbean movie Correct. with Orlando Bloom, mm. uh, Dead Men Tell No Tales, which is very interesting. Uh, Brendan Thwaites is in the mm. cast, Javier Bardem is in the cast, and some guy called Johnny Depp as well. Mm. Um, and they also did Marco Polo. So they have clearly, which is a Netflix uh, series, Benedict Wong on last week's show was talking about that as well. So they clearly have a very, they're, they're, they have an affinity for an epic aesthetic, so to speak. But um, but they shot this film, this is really interesting to me, they shot this film in both Norwegian and English. Yeah, really, there's a lot of interesting little sort of subtext to this. I think the reason why I like this film so much is it is very well directed. Mm. You know, they, they, they juice it. Um, the, all the little character beats are really interesting without kind of pounding them home. And and, and, and the, 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 the outdoor ocean work is great. But like you say, bizarrely, they shot sequences... In two languages, so they do well, the same scene over. And I spoke to what we should we should clarify. This means there are two versions of the film: mm. there's a Norwegian language version of the film and an English language version of the film. That's correct. So, so that's that's mm. you know, it's not a question. It's not in, within the movie. They don't just speak in Norwegian one scene and then English the next. There are two versions of the film, so you can see an English language version of the film if subtitles ain't your thing. Yes, or you can go you can go for the original, uh, full, authentic John Arnold. And there's a YouTube mashup where it's like alternate words. But I've interviewed the the, the main director for the website that'll be up um, about now so check it out because he talks about the process as an actor of doing the same scene immediately afterwards in a different language it's very mm. very unusual um, but I would just also say that they, they went out onto the ocean to shoot this mm. film which I think a Steven Spielberg would, would relay from Jaws is never the greatest idea but they, it has that authenticity it has that sense of the sea you know they were partly in the infinity tank in Malta but they actually went out and shot on the ocean and that's kind of crazy because the complexity of nailing stuff with continuity and bad weather and real sharks and all the rest of it uh, is mag- ginormous. Um, and I think the film, it, it rewards it rewards the viewer with that. Okay. Four stars then for Contiki, uh, which by my reckoning makes it the best film released this week, so maybe the one you want to seek out while you're waiting for uh, the Boxing Day stuff and you know, opening your presents and stuff, um, including your... Empire Magazine, obviously, big Christmas present. Uh, okay, so we'll race very, very quickly then through the, the films that are out on January 1st and January 2nd. Uh, there's uh, Alejandro G. Inaritu. He's dropped to Gonzalez. He's now called Alejandro G. Inaritu. That's what it's officially on the uh, the uh, the credit block for the film, which is really... Not Mick G. Inaritu. Not Mick G. Inaritu. Okay. That would be... That would be a there's a mashup. Uh, so this is Birdman. This is um what this is, this film is going to be very very difficult to describe in one sentence. It's a movie about ego, theater, Hollywood blockbusters, superheroes, and delusion. Fantastic. Uh, stars Michael Keaton, Emma Stone, Zach Galifianakis, uh, Naomi Watts, Ed Norton. Who else? Uh, Edward Norton. Please. Sorry, sorry. Edward G. Norton. <laughs> Uh, great cast. It's, it's astonishing. It's, it's techni- technically brilliant as yeah. well. Visually and technically brilliant. It's shot by Emmanuel Lebeski. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's not in one take, but it's made to look like it's in one take. So it's mm. it, it spirals over years. It's and a really yeah. It's, it's a really sweet. interesting. Like yeah. there'll be there'll be so there'll be a scene that finishes at night on a on a balcony, and the camera will tilt upwards, and then it will time lapse from nighttime to the next morning. Yeah. And then the camera will then drop down off the balcony, down into the street, and then carry on the story. Wow. That's, okay. that's an example of, of a transition whilst keeping it as a single take. The plot, by the way, just to give this some bit of context, is that Michael Keaton plays a, not necessarily washed up, but certainly heading that way, former blockbuster star. Maybe a little bit like Batman. He played a character called Birdman. Back in the day, he did three movies. Is he going to do Birdman 4? Probably not, because he's taking all of the money he's ever earned, his young 
uh, youngish or his daughter Emma Stone and trying to make a play on Broadway about a rather highfalutin um, book that he's adapted himself. Uh, loads of things, crazy things happen. Uh, again, as you say, things sort of fit together in one continuous rope, Hitchcock rope type take. And he has suffers from delusions and finds himself talking to himself uh, through this Birdman character. Mm. Um, with hilarious consequences. <laughs> uh, it's a tour de force by Michael Keaton. Uh, yeah. He was he was for a while, I think, the front runner for Best Actor. He still may will Best Actor, but Maybe, I think may do, may do. Mr. Yellowwell might might well pip him to the post. But uh, we or, or Bradley Cooper or Bradley Cooper. And we gave this five stars. Oh yeah, five Empire stars. Uh, so do go and check that one out. It's out on New Year's Day, as indeed is the Woman in Black, the Angel of Death. She never left. She never left Il Marsh House. She's back, back, back. And this one, uh, Daniel Radcliffe's not back for reasons we can't go into. This, this um, time it's it's war. This time it's war. <laughs> this time it is war. It's yeah. uh, set during World War Two. It's set during World War II, stars Jeremy Irvine, uh, Phoebe Fox, uh, Helen McCrory's in it as well. Uh, different actress playing the woman in black this time, and it's uh, a group of kids. Eight children are sent, are uh, evacuated to Eel Marsh House. Which is not a good idea. Not a good idea. It's a dilapidated, rotten old pile where people have <clears throat> really been deathed. And still, they send the kids who, of course, were in danger when they were in a big city. Mm. So they send them to this totally safe house. And the young schoolmistress, Phoebe Fox, is that right? Phoebe yes. Fox, uh, goes, well, I think there might be something weird going on here. And with the help of Jeremy Irvine's RAF officer, uh, tries to discover what's a guan. And guess what's a guan? A ghost. That's a ghost lady, a bad ghost lady coming to get them all. Yes. But a ghost lady who uh, has a, a Jones for children as well. Ooh. She doesn't like them. Don't like them. Sounds like a job for Danny Elfman. Um, it certainly does. Uh, we gave this one three stars. Three stars, The Woman in Black, The Angel of Death. First one is the James Watkins movie. It's really scary. Yeah. And I've heard this one's very, very scary in parts as well. So uh, so do go and check that one out. Also out on New Year's Day. As is Theory of Everything, which is effectively a Stephen Hawking biopic directed by James Marsh and starring Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones, who will be on this podcast mm. when we come back. Mm. After. As will Michael Keaton. Indeed. Indeed. So uh, just very, very quickly, Phil. Yeah, let's take us through. Take us through the. Uh, okay, well, the first thing to mention is it's adapted not from Stephen Hawking's work or memoirs or his book, um, *Brief History of Time*, obviously, but his ex-wife Jane Wilde, played by Felicity Jones, her book about their marriage, and it's very much a two-hander. So Eddie Redmayne's getting a lot of props for his performance, and it's very, very good, as Stephen Hawking's playing him from an undergraduate in Cambridge to um, the man that we kind of is is one of the most globally famous people around, um, but also Felicity Jones, his character as well. And I, I love their their um, scenes together. I found it very moving and very tearful at times, this film. Um, they're, they're a story of a marriage, really, more than anything else, more than a, a story of, of maths and science. Um, it's a story about love and difficult circumstances. Um, and it was a four-star Empire Review. Four-star Empire Review. We'll delve into that one in greater detail on the Jan 9th podcast. Uh, well, there was a lot to get through. Um, but we did it. And now we can go and relax for the next couple of weeks. And so can you. If you, for some reason, crave more of the Empire podcast over the Christmas break, we have worked tirelessly, uh, Ali in particular, to accommodate your needs. Uh, there's a brace of Hobbit spoiler specials featuring Richard Armitage, Philip Boyens, and us nattering away uh, for you to listen to. And also our review of the year epic uh, they're just waiting for your ears uh, until we return for more Formulated Fun 
uh, on Jan 9th when, as I've just said, we'll be joined by Michael Keaton star Birdman and Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones to talk about the theory of absolutely bloody well everything. How exciting. Until then, it is farewell for 2014. Happy New Year and Merry Christmas from Phil. Merry New Year Christmas. Merry New Year! Uh, Dan. Happy everything. Happy bloody everything, you guys. And it's Merry Christmas from me. See you guys in a lay-by. Take care.